You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. Sonic speaks. We're lucky enough to spend the night with you.、Mm, I'm sure we can work something out. Hey, that angel's just did the trick.、Mm-hmm. It'll cost you more than the bar tab. Sure. Anything for you, doll. How much? Your soul. <laughs> My what? <laughs> Your immortal, as they say, soul. <laughs> well, that's all. <laughs> that's the package. <laughs> Terrific. You got it. So easy. Can't be worth much. Soul, pretty lady, is for people who sing the blues.、Uh, I guess the price is going down. And that was Elva May Hoover in one of her iconic roles in Nightfall from Angel's Kiss. Thank you for coming back to Sonic Speaks. As this week we continue our Nightfall tribute with an interview from that Canadian legend Elva May Hoover, and with special thanks to Austin Beach for his production editing magic. She is an actress of so many iconic Canadian shows, not the least of which are King of Kensington, Avonlea, ENG, Street Legal, Danger Bay, The Edison Twins, The Littlest Hobo, Seeing Things, The Terry Fox Story. You know, all these stories, all these shows are near and dear to Canadian hearts, and that's just a bunch of shows that I remember. Not to mention a lot of modern shows like Murdoch Mysteries, The Handmaid's Tale, The Romanoffs. But we're here today to speak about a medium where she's also received great acclaim—not just one of the top ten voice actors in Canada, but also an amazing actor in radio drama. It's my great pleasure to speak with a real national treasure, Elva May Hoover. Elva, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I can't tell you how much of a thrill it is for me. Well, thanks so much, Jack. I really, really appreciate that glowing introduction. As I said to you earlier. The period of which you speak is a very long time ago for me now. Probably, well, it's forty years ago, right? You know, in terms of radio drama, that's going back quite a long ways. But、uh, it was definitely an exciting and interesting time, and a thrill to be part of the things that I was part of at that time, and to know that they have this whole other continuing life. I was contacted through Facebook by Neil Marsh. At one point, who's an American fellow who has a huge enthusiasm for radio, like yourself, and、uh, so he's put me in touch with a lot of people over the years because of their love of that iconic series, Nightfall. Now, did you listen to radio drama growing up yourself? Absolutely. We didn't have a, a TV in the house until I was, I think, in my early teens. I grew up with just my mom. So there were just the two of us. There was not a lot of money or whatever. So radio definitely was the medium in our house. And、uh, I remember listening to things like Lux Radio Theater of the Stars. That was the that actually had a lot of Hollywood actors in it and stuff. But they were, you know, often dramas, and、uh, it was kind of like a movie on Sunday night, right? And you'd sort of tune in, and it was something that I listened to with my mother. So. You know, just as people at one point used to gather around the television, you know, we would gather around the radio at an appointed time and listen to these things. And I'm trying to think what else in particular stuck with me. You know, certainly the comedy. You know, the Jack Benny show. You know, things of that. And that's one that stands out for me that I really did find extremely funny at the time. Sometimes now, in retrospect, some of the humor is a little questionable, to say the least, but. Uh, in, in that time and place, it was funny, and、uh, and we enjoyed it. I didn't listen to CBC Radio very much as a kid, although I think that the, I think the stuff that we listened to was more daytime stuff, not radio drama per se. So you know, we listened to things like the Kate Aiken Show, which was a sort of talk show, and. Did you listen to the Happy Gang? Do you know I didn't listen to the Happy Gang? Although I found out years later that someone who was loosely related to me was in the Happy Gang, and I never knew about that connection. 
Wow. So did you start to realize you wanted to be an actress listening to radio drama? Or when did that first kick in for you? The idea that maybe you would be interested in doing something like that? Well, you know, it's a it's a funny story. And I, I had to leave school very early because there was no money. And all I knew was I wanted to get back to school. And I, I didn't want to be, a, you know, work in an office forever or whatever. I was always pretty cerebral and I love to read more than anything and, uh, you know, read whatever I could get my hands on. So I knew I wanted to get back to school. That was a goal somehow. And I read an ad in uh, the Toronto Star newspaper when the National Theatre School of Canada was opening and it was asking you, it, it, what it said was, you know, we're looking, we're searching the country, you know, for young people to go to this theater school. And, you know, if you apply and if you are successful, then we will find you the money to go. So that sounded really good to me. So I wrote away and um, they sent me a list of plays, um, to, you know, that were recommended. You had to do one period piece and one modern piece. And so, you know, I liked reading the plays. That was interesting. So I did end up auditioning for the National Theatre. I was only 15 at the time, so I was too young to go. But that's, in fact, where I ended up going, was to the National Theatre School. But, I mean, I knew so little about acting and what acting was about. I didn't even know that people rehearsed out loud. So, literally, I would sit on the john, which was the only private place, and, and just move my lips saying the words. Like I knew you had to memorize the lines, so I would sit there uh, doing Juliet on the John, as it were. So the first time that I said those lines out loud was actually at my audition. Wow. So how many years was the college? The National Theatre School of Canada was in Montreal, and uh, it was a three-year course. And it was my university. It was my, it was, extra, you know, I had never, even by the time I went, I had never acted in a play. I had never done any acting, but I was accepted on, they saw something in me in terms of, I think, just my sheer imaginative commitment was impressive to them. But as a very interior kid, very quiet kid, really, I was happy to be there because I got to go to museums and I got to read all kinds of interesting stuff. And I think roundabout towards the end of the first year, I remember my acting teacher at the time saying to me, I know exactly, I was only 17 as well, which is pretty young to be going to a theater school. But he sat me down and he said, I know exactly what it is you're doing. He said, you know, you're educating yourself. He said, and, and, and I get that, and I'm very proud of you for what you're doing. However, we need, as a theater school, we need more. We need you to come out of yourself. We need you to start performing. So here's what we're going to do. This summer, we're going to Stratford, Ontario, and um, the whole school is going to Stratford. And we're going to do an outdoor version of Antony and Cleopatra. And all the women will play Cleopatra in this production, including yourself. Um, and, you know, being outdoors, you're going to have to speak louder, basically. <laughs> so that's what we did. And uh, as a result of that, they went, yeah, yeah, okay, we, we now are convinced that we've got, we've got somebody who actually can do this. But um, it's a process, you know. That's fantastic. I'm an English teacher. So when you talk about how you love to read, it hits me all in the right spots. Can you tell me some of your favorite books growing up that you, you loved to read? As, interestingly enough, I didn't, I didn't realize that there was, um, a, that there was children's literature because I started reading adult books and I started to read. My father subscribed to the Book of the Month Club, so I read those books while we were still living with my father when I was, that's up until the age of seven. And then when my mother and I were living on our own, I would go to the library and I would go to the adult library and I would, you know, make friends with the librarian or, you know, the librarian would see this young person wandering about looking at books and started to make, you know, recommendations. So, you know, certainly I, I, I love Dickens a lot. I remember reading, she was a Polish woman, and I remember reading some European novels in translation. I read some Camus, 
I loved American literature. I loved Thomas Wolfe, Look Homeward Angel, and the other uh, American writer that I still, to this day, love is John Steinbeck. So I would say that those were things that, you know, are standouts for me, looking back. Oh, and I, lo I loved Oscar Wilde. And actually reading his fairy tales, you know, his, his books for young people. And, and then it was sort of like, oh, there's this whole genre of, and I was about 12 at the time, of children's literature. So suddenly it's like, oh, and there's actually a children's library in here as well. So I kind of went through children's literature kind of in six months, you know, very, very quickly. And it was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. But it was mainly the adult stuff that, that appealed to me. Well, that was surprising. I was expecting, you know, L. Frank Baum, Ellen Montgomery, you know, all of these things that kids normally grow up with in that way. And you, you started off with the adult fiction. Was your mother a reader as well? You had that opportunity to talk with her about the books that you read? No, my mom wasn't, a, you know, my mom had to work very, very hard because there were, you know, just the two of us and she was the sole breadwinner and stuff. And she liked movies and I certainly remember, and she liked music. So, you know, some of the things that I remember from being really young and with, you know, long playing records and stuff, I really loved um, the movie of Showboat my mother and I went to see. And we both fell in love with, with that movie and with the soundtrack from that movie. And we would listen to that long playing record over and over again. Um, but books, not so much. I mean, she liked magazines and she loved movie stars. Elizabeth Taylor was her absolute favorite. And so, you know, I, I, I always had a, a good dose of celebrity gossip in my life because she loved that aspect of the world. But yeah, I would say it was more movies and music. Brings up two questions that I have in my mind. First of all, what did she do? And did this uh, love of showboat end up blossoming in, in any part of a musical career on stage for you? No, it's really interesting. She had a lovely voice. And she, she was a Scotswoman. She was born in Scotland. And uh, as a, a young girl, went out to work very early, again, because of financial circumstances. But she, I found out later, it wasn't something that she talked about a lot, but she had a very pretty soprano voice. And she actually won a prize when she was in school. But she never sang that much. I mean, she loved music, but I don't, I don't remember hearing her sing. And it was a very quiet household. It's, I can't describe it any other way. We listened to music, but we didn't actually sing very much. And there was this, always this kind of this atmosphere of don't make a lot of noise, don't make a lot of fuss, which is very Scots anyway, I think, very British kind of. So, I mean, that, that accounted for my sort of more interior life and why for me, theater school was a process of having to kind of come out of myself because that was not natural to me to be performative. And then in my early career, I had to sing in a few different shows. I did The Hostage at the National Arts Center and um, I played Teresa, so I had to sing a cappella, like Irish folk songs. And I, <laughs> I did a really strange science fiction musical at one point that I sang in and I did a review where I had to sing, but I never felt like a singer. You know, it was kind of more like, oh yeah, I mean, I, I knew I could carry a tune and I have, you you know, I didn't sing flat or anything like that, but I just never thought of myself as a singer. And then somehow in my elder years, I became involved with choirs because I really do love music. So this last year before COVID, I connected with a woman at um, the University of Toronto who was in touch with our choir, who's doing her doctorate in music and she's w working with older people. And so this is a real full circle moment. I started to do singing lessons with Grace and we've continued to do them online. And one of the songs that I'm singing <laughs> is Along Came Bill from Showboat. That's so awesome. Huge full circle moment. And I was laughing with her as we were doing finishing up our lesson last week because you know you work on little segments of the song and I was kind of really f f really felt this 
enormous sense of flight. You know, I was feeling really, really good and easy and lyrical and all of this stuff. And I said to her, oh my God, I felt like a singer. <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt that in my life, but it was a wonderful feeling. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. So you've you've done singing on stage, as you say at the time, you didn't think of yourself as a singer and now you do, it's wonderful. And you've done film and you've done voiceover. How did you get involved in doing radio drama? Well, it was, it was the very first thing I did was radio drama. I was at theater school and my then husband was doing some radio at CBC Montreal and there was a wonderful lion of a man called Rupert Kaplan, who was one of the big producers in CBC Radio in Montreal. Again, I was, you know, my husband Gary said to me, you know, you should be doing, you could do radio. And it was a way to make some money as well. And I said, oh, I don't know. You know, it's like, I just don't even know where to begin. And he said, well, okay, fine. So, you know, all you need to do is, and in those days you could do this, you can't do this now, but because there were no agents or whatever. So he said, what you do is you go to the CBC radio building, which I believe is on Drummond Street. And I went at on my lunch hour, on my Friday lunch hour from school, I would take the bus and I would go to Drummond Street and I would walk up the flight of stairs to the end of the hall where Rupert's office was and I would knock on the door and and then this voice would go, yes, because he had this big bombastic voice and I would say, um, hello Mr. Kaplan, uh, my name's Alvin Bay Hoover and I was wondering if you had any work for me today and he would say, no, and I was like devastated. So I left and I said to Gary, I said, oh my God, it was awful. Like I, I went and I knocked on the door and I asked him if he had any work and he said, no. And I, so I left and Gary said, that's fine. Just go back again next Friday. So I did that for, I think it was five Fridays and it was becoming routine, right? Get on the bus, go to Drummond Street, knock on the, walk down the hall, knock on the door, you know. Uh, hello, uh, hello, Mr. Um, Kaplan. It's Elva May Hoover. Do you have any work for me today? And he said, come in. Oh, my God. So I came in and he shoved this script across the desk. And it was the part of the receptionist in some little the telephone operator or the receptionist or whatever. And he said, read this. So I did. And he said, fine, you'll do. That was my first job. So, and then he used me all the time. So it was great. But what it, year was that? Well, it would be 1963. Wow. 1963. So Rupert liked me. And, you know, I was, I, at that point, I was in my, I think my second year of theater school. Um, so, you know, he continued to use me on a kind of semi-regular basis. And, and then even after I graduated from school and I came back to Toronto, you know, by then I was playing sort of leading roles and stuff and ingenue leads and all of that. You know, he would bring me in, like he would do a limited series of something and he would bring me in from Toronto and, you know, I'd work on, on radio for, you know, a week or 10 days or whatever. He knew I had a bit of a radio profile, I guess, and, and then... After theater school, I lived in England for three years, and I didn't do a lot of acting. I got married, and I had my daughter, and I did little bits and pieces, but I didn't do a lot, a lot. And then when we came back here, radio kind of started again for me, and I, I don't really remember how I got started, but I did. And then once I started doing radio, it was like you were part of a bit of a repertory group, you know? I was always a tremendously good sight reader. Didn't have to spend hours with the script to bring it off a page. And I guess people recognize that that is a skill. Not everybody is comfortable with that. And I just always found radio so liberating because you weren't defined by the way you looked in the way that you were on camera or even on stage, you know. You, you could really play an enormous variety of characters. And I found that very liberating. And I really felt, I just enjoyed it so much. Very pressured. And not having to learn lines either, like being able to use, read a, use a script, you know, without all the, the effort of rehearsal, you know, where you're absorbing the lines and you're working so hard to get to a place of being natural with dialogue that isn't your own, you know. I, I just always loved it. And most people I knew who were in that circle really loved doing it. 
it was fun. It was great, great fun. So you said it's a small repertory group. So you had regular actor friends that you would act with on a regular basis. I'm thinking of one of my favorite Canadian actors as well that I grew up with. And I'll always regret that I never had a chance to interview him because he retired in Fergus where I grew up is Chris Wiggins. So do you remember working with Chris? I know you were also in his show later on in Friday the 13th. Yeah. But do you remember working with him in the early years in radio? Absolutely. I mean, you know, Chris was part of that, you know, but I don't remember the scripts that we worked on. I don't remember what we did. You know, sometimes they were, you know, adaptations of novels, classic novels. You know, sometimes they were thrillers. Sometimes they were just this huge variety of stuff, you know, and that was one of the joys of it too, you know, that you just get a call and, but Chris was often there. I mean, with that wonderful voice. Oh my God. (laughs) Spine tingling voice. Resonant. You know, he had that voice like a lot of Welsh people do, you know, that kind of sonorous, just amazing voice. Um, and as you said, I, I did work with him on Friday, Friday the 13th in a couple of, I think I did three episodes of Friday the 13th back in the day when having done one didn't mean that you didn't do another one another time because there were less of us. <laughs> and you could play different characters too. You could show up one week as this person and another week as another character that allowed for that as well. Did you hang out and practice together? What was the process like? Well, I was thinking about that, you know, when you asked me to do this and I was thinking about the process and my memory is failing me a little bit. Like I don't remember. I know that there were some shows where you'd go in and you'd have a read through and then you'd come back to record And then there were other shows where you'd have the read through and then you'd go straight into recording. But generally speaking, you know, it was in the CBC radio building on Jarvis Street. I think it's a a French school now, but that was where radio happened for years and years and years. And, uh, you know, so it was like a second home. And it was a big studio at that time with, and they'd have like two big long round tables stuck together because often the casts you know, depending on the size of the cast, but often the casts were big. And the one thing that I remember was we all smoked and the room was blue because you would walk into the room and it was just like, it was just this blue-gray aura of smoke and ashtrays all down this big round table, right? Overflowing with butts. I mean, it's amazing, right? It was a different time, what can I say? If there was somebody who didn't smoke, it must have been awful. You'd have to smoke out of self-defense. Yeah, yeah, it would be like living in a London in fog the whole time. It'd be difficult for the for the engineers to see you guys to give you signals, you'd think, at times for that reason. If you had a job, would you get notification from a particular department or a particular person? Or were you able, would people call you from all different shows? How did they know to be able to get you? Was there somebody in charge of the actors or? I'm pretty sure that there were casting directors at the CBC, like internal casting directors. I think directors often would ask for certain people and then the casting director would contact your agent. So, you know, I would, I would get a call from my agent saying, you know, you've got a booking for, you know, next Friday and Saturday, whatever, um, or next Tuesday and Thursday. And as I say, sometimes it would the booking would be just for the read-through, and then you would come back for the actual recording. But most of the recording situations were a day, like they didn't take even a whole day. You know, it was like maybe three or four hours or whatever. And, you know, people were so skilled and so good at what they were doing, you know, and there'd be like a little circle of microphones and you would do, sometimes you would do like a blocking for radio so that, you know, you would block your moving in and out and then it would be blocked so that you're not blocking anybody else and you're leaving the mic stage left as someone is moving in on stage right, you know, and then we also have the sound men in the studio doing live sound effects a great deal of the time in the early days. So, and they were brilliant, you know, doing the sound effects of horses hooves and this, that, and the other. So, yeah, I mean, mainly we were in that outer room with this, and the sound effects person might have their own kind of booth with some glass around it off to one side. But they were in the room with us, not in the not in the recording studio. 
And then I remember we did, I don't know if you know, do you know the folk singer Stan Rogers? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. For sure. Stan was amazing. Names are going to fail me now. I think it was Paul Mills, who was a producer at CBC. And I'm pretty, right. I, I mean, I may not have this right because it was a long time ago, but I think it was Paul, who was a music producer as well, but he also worked at CBC, and he had a rather brilliant idea to do dramatizations around a lot of Stan's music, because a lot of Stan's music was storytelling, and they were they were stories, right? So he did something called The Sisters, which is about, I, I think they're two rocks in Nova Scotia, but there's a sort of folklore myth about the two sisters who become the rocks. So Stan was actually in studio with his band playing as we were doing this. So it was extraordinary. It was the most incredible atmosphere. I mean, so moving. And that one, the, the sisters, I was nominated for an actor award. It was a beautiful, beautiful piece. And years later, Stan's widow did a DVD or like a CD of some of the radio plays and sent them to me. So that was really nice to have. You know, she, she sort of was able to find a lot of the people who had been involved. So I came by that, which was beautiful. And yeah, Harris and the Mayor, that's another song that they I remember being involved with that. I don't know how many they did, but it was incredible. I mean, to be doing, you know, these really lovely kind of radio dramas with those musicians in studio. I mean, how exciting is that? Yeah, for our American and international audience, Stan Rogers, to me, personifies a lot of sort of a Canadian ideas and, and myths and beliefs. He's such a storyteller. He kind of reminds me of Harry Chapin. There are just some really powerful elements in Stan. And if you have an opportunity to go and listen to his music, I highly recommend it. So it's interesting how different people might get in touch with you because they probably had somebody central in casting. But you said they would get in touch with your agent. You didn't tell us when you got an agent. So when did that happen? About Well, I'm trying to think. Like, I, I lived in England for about three and a half years. I didn't actually, by the time I started being back in Toronto full time, because when I first came back, I did theater, like, nonstop. I mean, literally. At that time, I, I don't know if you're aware, but at that time... There was no Canadian Actors' Equity. If you worked in the theater, you worked under American Equity. And I did enough work in the first 10 years of my career that I actually was eligible for an American pension because I was paying money into American Equity for 10 years. And when I was looking back at all the contracts, because you had to find all the paperwork and stuff to be eligible for the, the minimum American pension, there were three years that I worked between 39 and 42 weeks in the theater, all up and down the country, right? You must have been exhausted at that point, especially since you had a child at this point, Exactly, right? I was married. And were you a single mom? Not at that, at that point, point I was, no, I, I, okay. I, I became a single mom not, not that long after, but uh, during that period, wow. we really were gypsies. I mean, we lived out of a, a trunk. And also two seasons were longer, you know, like you'd get hired there were proper repertory seasons. So, you know, you'd go to Theatre Calgary and you'd work from September until April. And you, you did the lead, you know, the ingenue lead in every show. You rehearsed for five hours a day under equity. You were only allowed to because you were playing at night. So you'd rehearse from like 10 to 3. No, it's more than five hours. So it was, and with lunch. So you were 10 to 4. And then I'd go and I'd pick up my, my daughter from daycare um, and wherever was looking after her, I'd take her home, I'd have to make dinner, all the rest of it. Then the babysitter would come in for the evening and we would go back to the theater and do our show. And then you'd come home and then you were up the next day and the whole cycle started over again. And on the weekends, it was matinees. So it was pretty intense. You know, thank God we were young <laughs> and to have that kind of energy. Like I can't even imagine it now, but that's what the world was. That's what you did. So Ultimately, when I came back to Toronto, I guess I was probably by this time in my, I was probably 27, 28. My husband and I were, you know, had made the decision that I actually was working, uh, doing a, a, a repertory season in Toronto at 
to what is now Canadian. And my daughter was about to, to start going to school. So this idea of being, you know, constant gypsies wasn't really working for us anymore because when a kid's going to school, they need some kind of continuity. So I made the decision that I wanted to spend more time in Toronto. So we rented a house here in Toronto and I guess I started looking for an agent and I, I had my husband in those days, he was much more outgoing than I was and he was kind of, he was like my manager. So I'm pretty sure that the first agent I had, I got through my, my husband sort of shilling for me. And uh, I started to do um, really, really well with on-camera commercials because I was, you know, the perfect age to play the young housewife anyway. But I, I'm not stupid and I sort of went... I recognized that there was a thing called overexposure and I thought, hmm, this is great. Like uh, suddenly I'm making real money, but I sort of thought, I know this isn't going to last forever, but I sort of found out about voiceover and I thought, I think I could do that. And so I started asking the agent, like, I really want to do voiceover. And they said, oh, okay, fine. You know, so we'll, we'll start sending you out. And I started to, to get voiceover. So I was doing really, really well with commercial voiceover. And then my agent was leaving the agency she was with and starting up her own agency and said to me, I'd really like you to come with me. And I said, I'm happy to come with you, but I want your guarantee that you are really going to push me for voiceover because I have this kid and I'm on my own. And the great thing about voiceover, of course, is it was done within office hours because advertising agencies have office hours. And she said, no, absolutely. You know, that's really a good direction for you to go at this time. So, you know, that combined with radio, which I did a lot of, was really my career for probably the next 10 years. It was a lot. It was very, I did some film and TV. I didn't do any theater. I stopped doing theater, absolutely, because it just didn't pay, which, you know, I regret in a way because I loved the theater and I would have loved to have kept working in the theater. And I lost some valuable time because of that. But anyway, um, I don't live in regret. And I was very fortunate to have the career I had. And, you know, it was out of that that I was able to buy a house and, you know, have a retirement. And, you know, those those years were high earning years. So it was great, too to be able to do all of that. That's key time to spend with your daughter, yeah. Gemma, right? So you can't get those years back. So I'm, I'm sure you were really grateful for that as well. Do you have a memory specifically about being asked to do Nightfall? I know you did so many. How did you get involved? Well, in it was mainly Bill. You know, I had worked with it. Bill was involved in some of the Stan Rogers stuff as well, because Bill was a Nova Scotian originally, and he's still a Nova Scotian. Yeah, and, and, and very connected to Stan through Paul and all the rest of it. And, and you know, he, he was a force. He was a poet himself, Bill, and a writer, and just had the most amazing kinetic energy. I mean, he was an absolute joy to be around. He really galvanized the people that he was working with. It was just fun. It was huge fun in studio. I always remember um, those of us who worked with Bill always remember his famous phrase when we were set to go on mic and go to air and he was, he'd say, all right, let's stomp this toad. And that was cool. You know, uh, I mean, he had a million of them, but that was the one that I remember, let's stomp this toad. And, you know, it was, but it was that kind of energy in the room, you know, and often, I mean, we would only do one or two takes because people were just that good, you know, and that's why it didn't take very long to do it, you know. Um, and when you listen to them now, I mean, you can hear the freshness and the, the commitment and the immediacy. And I think a lot of that, I mean, he worked with very skilled, he worked with only the best, but it was his kind of mad poet persona that kind of, as I say, was so galvanizing and and so exciting to be around. There's a real sense of immersiveness in the scripts. These were almost like audio movies, and that's what makes them very contemporary from what I can tell. Did you get that feeling at the time that this was something special? Well, I, I, the one thing I will tell you is that I think that I always prided myself on a kind of naturalism. 
I mean, I had been, you know, I had been theatrically trained and I had done classical work and all the rest of it, but I really like, I like naturalism. I like realism. I don't like that fruity theatricality, unless it's fun, you know what I mean? Unless it's part of, of what you're playing with. I mean, I'm still very drawn to reality and things being real. And I think a lot of the people who worked in that circle did have that kind of, they were very good actors. And I think they, you know, I guess a lot of us were influenced by what had gone on in, uh, you know, in American film and TV and that movement towards naturalism and realism. And I think we prided ourselves on not sounding fruity and theatrical. That was kind of another generation of actors and we weren't too interested in that. I bet you if you had more experience with film and television too, when you're doing theater, you have to project. So there is that tendency to be over, but there's such an intimacy in television and film and even more so in radio. Absolutely. When you do your work, I have to tell you, I, I interviewed John Ballantyne and Kevin Hartnell and they both cited you as like one of their most favorite wow. actors. And they said when they listened to it, they fell in love with the demon of the angels. And that was just one of your many different roles. They believed it even at a young age. And that says a lot about the work that you guys had done. Were there actors that you really liked to work with, especially on that show that you can remember? Oh, there. I mean, I there were lots of actors that I liked working with. I mean, I'm thinking of the, the Blood Countess stuff, you know, working with Kate Reed and who was amazing Henry Raymer who was the voice who did the um, the narrator yes um, I worked a lot with Henry over the years he was extraordinary I mean again that voice like melted butter and scotch and rum and you know what I mean like just kind <laughs> of just liquid beautiful beautiful voice and such a lovely man. I mean, it's so lovely to be around. So I, I, I always liked working with Henry, Chris Wiggins, who you've already mentioned. David Calderisi, again, an extraordinary voice. I'm sure I'm leaving out all my... John Stalker, man of a thousand voices, you know, uh, and great fun to be around. And I did all kinds of voiceover work with him as well. Another name comes to mind, Mike Ball. Michael Ball. They were talking about <laughs> Michael Ball. Michael. Do you know him? Oh, okay. I don't know. I mean, he might have been in another city. No, my, yeah, but, Michael, uh, Michael and I actually were at theater school at the same time, not in the same year. But yeah, I, and I worked with Michael at Theater Calgary, but I, I don't ever remember doing radio with Michael Ball. Did you ever listen to your stuff after it was produced? Did you hear it on the radio or did you try to divorce yourself? No, from? I think I actually enjoyed it. And my daughter, you know, my daughter writes horror. I don't know if you know that. I was going to mention <laughs> that. Gemma Files is a very famous horror writer in Canada. Absolutely. Sure. And she loved Nightfall. You know, she's, it, it's really interesting because we've always had, even to this day, we laugh about, we have some crossover points, but there's all kinds of interests that we do not share. I and mean, she loves action movies and fantasy and fantasy puts me to sleep. Literally. I mean, I, I took her to see Star Wars. And I was really into it when they were in the cafe. I was really intrigued by all the characters. And then as soon as the jet fighter started, I just, <laughs> no, like I just have no interest in mechanical things blowing up and like it just doesn't do it for me. So we talk about these crossover points that we've had in our in our lives. And one of the big ones was Nightfall because she loved that uh, that world, that gothic world. And uh, yeah, so that, no, we would listen. We would listen to those things uh, together. She would be quite young when they first came out though too, because uh, she's about the same age as I am, yeah. if I remember. I was yeah. 66, so, so there you go. So she would have been, if it was 80, she would have been 12. No, she loved all that Nightfall stuff. And, and it was really interesting, too, because I was talking with people about it, and there were no censors about stuff. And you could get quite adult in some of the uh, well, material. And the kind of uh, sexy scenes. There was a lot of heavy breathing going on. And I mean, one of the things that I loved, too, that I remember was you were talking at one point about projecting and theater. And I mean, my voice is, you know, fairly powerful, but... I was never, um, I grew up in an era of, well, powerhouse 
female actors, you know, like the Uta Hagens and the Kate Reeves and the, you know, and a lot of really ballsy kind of voices were going on. And that was never my thing. I've never had that kind of voice, you know. But what I loved about working on microphone was being able to use chest voice and I and being able to, to find a sweet spot in my voice that really kind of worked with the microphone and was very kind of, it wasn't the voice that, you know, you used in a theater, you know. So it, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is because of the immediacy of the microphone, I could find a flexibility and I really understood instinctively how to do that, how to use the microphone to my advantage. So you, you would look for a certain resonance. We have a lot of people who are learning actors and people who act in audio drama. What makes a good actor, first and foremost? Imagination, that ability to put yourself into whatever set of circumstances the writer has created for you, the ability to leave your own sensor at the door. You know, I mean, there are things that I've done as an actor that aren't necessarily how I would behave in life or would want to behave in life. But that ability to kind of say, you know, that's not useful. That kind of censorship is not useful. Commitment, the fact that you're willing to, to jump in and take a leap of faith and you know I've screamed within a role in a way that I probably never have in life I've laughed within a role in a way that I probably never have in life because you give yourself permission to do things that you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily do in your in your life or in your real world it's wonderfully liberating and you also discover parts of yourself that you go, oh, I didn't know that about me. That's interesting. Hmm. You know? Times when emotion would come out based upon a script that would really affect you. And that might illuminate some part of it. Like, I didn't know that was yeah, a problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Or to recognize the things that move you. Like, oh, God, that hit hard. Oh, hmm. You know, that reminds me of... You know, where's that coming from? Where is that? The one thing that always makes me cry is birth. Like if I see a birth being enacted, right, or I read about birth, I cry. I'm messed up. I get very emotional. And I have no idea why that is, but I recognize it. To see true connection between a parent and an adult child, I find incredibly moving. I think, and I think I know the reason that that moves me is because I never had that. So in that case, it's a lack. You mean you never had that when you were a child or you never had that as an adult? No, I, I, I mean the relationship that I had with my mother never had that kind of intimacy or that kind of acceptance as an adult so that there was a, a kind of, like I can look at my daughter and you know, I'm not saying our relationship's perfect. No relationship is perfect. But I think the real turning point for me was realizing that I actually had things that I needed to apologize for <laughs> as a parent um, where I had been less than adequate. And we've had those conversations. And I think they're really important ones. I think children need to know that their parents are human and that their parents know that they made mistakes. To me, that's important. Have those conversations with your kids. I agree. And I think to be kind to your mother, I think there was a whole series of generations there which wanted to keep those walls. This is not something I need to share with my daughter. My job is to bring her up and let her go out upon the world. There's certainly generational elements there that kept that inauthentic connection between just two human beings who care and love exactly. about each other. And there, and and there so, was a kind of reverence for motherhood and fatherhood that just by virtue of the person having been a father or a mother that somehow you should respect them you know we all know that mothers and fathers come in a lot of different stripes and i don't think all mothers and fathers are instantly worthy of respect so when i see that humanness portrayed of a parent 
connecting with their adult child in a vulnerable and loving way, it moves me tremendously. And I'll bet that those elements, those strictures that you had, also helped shape your desire for connection to the audience? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I, 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 I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. I'm not an easy person socially, but I love one of the aspects of this work, of course, is that all that social stuff kind of falls away because you just have to do what you've been asked to do. So you, as I say, you leave a lot of stuff at the door and you just, you're there to get the job done. But out of that comes this bonding, you know, with the people that are involved in it with you. It's experiential. And it's sort of like, you know, you might not have seen someone for, you did a show with for years and years and years, but that connection is always going to be there because you exposed your heart and your mind to that if you were doing the work right to that individual and they did the same to you and you carry that with you and it enriches you that's a wonderful way to put it taking that acting ability and that what did you find makes a great audio actor well definitely the ability to sight read you need to be able to read ahead so that although you're in the moment you're also you know what's coming up you know what's happening next and that's really skilled sight reading and it can be developed that ability to to sight read i mean the, the people that that i know who are really really good at it have done a lot of reading out loud and now of course there's this whole world of audiobooks as well which is not an area that i'm desperate to get into i've done i did one uh, and I really enjoyed it, but I have no interest in, you know, developing a home studio or whatever. And a lot of what's required nowadays is, you know, for the economics of it to work, you need to be able to do all of that. And that can take you away from maybe potential roles that would be really exciting to try. I understand that. Um, but yeah, that certainly audiobooks in terms of sight reading separates the men from the boys, as it were, or the women from the girls, whatever because you need to be really superb as a sight reader. So I would say that that's one of the things that's required. I think it's probably number one. And this is taking talent for granted, okay? Because talent, obviously, is the major component. The other things can be learned. Um, microphone technique, uh, really, really important. You have to start acting with your ears and recognizing that the other stuff just isn't important in that world. You are literally acting with your ears. So you need to be able to listen to yourself, but not listen to yourself. So in other words, you've got a headphone on. You're listening to yourself in terms of modulation and music at some level. Music in terms of intonation, and but just having that sensitivity to acting with your ears in that way but not actually listening to yourself. Yeah, I was wondering if you're reading through and that you're looking for the beats of the story, like where's my emotional height? You'll try to build towards things or is your reading ahead, your sight reading points you in that direction? Well, I've always been pretty instinctive in that sense. Like I don't think a lot about beats. I think more about intentions. And I think that, you know, certainly in terms of a half hour drama or whatever, you just instinctively know where the high notes are. Like, I don't plot that at all. I mean, you know where the, where the drama is in the story. But intentions, I think, are really, really important. I think knowing what it is that you're, how, how you're wanting to affect the person that you're working with is really important. You know, having a very clear sense of that. For me, that's the most important thing. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, it's been really illuminating and just wonderful to have this conversation with you. I guess I have one question outside of radio drama. What did Superman 2 teach you about being a mother? Rely <laughs> <laughs> on your kids so they don't fall into the fall. That's about it. I also know you were a little harsh on on the little boy. <laughs> you a little swat. Wait till I get you home kind of thing. Hadley Kay, who played the boy, does a lot of voice work and animation. And uh, he's still around and recently has started doing some of the conferences around Superman 2. So we wow. were messaging back and forth and he said, 
yeah, you know, maybe sometime we should do it together, you know, the mother and son thing. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun to do that. Imagine. It, and so many play memories. the worst mother in the world for, for <laughs> all time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alva. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. And I really look forward to your next big project. Do you have anything on the go? Uh, no, nothing at the moment. You know, everything's on COVID hold. And, of course. You know, I, I, I was supposed to audition for a voiceover the beginning of this week and I wasn't sure what the protocols were so I didn't bother but now I know what the protocols are and I know that you know ACTRA our union is very much in touch with the sound studio and I think that I will start doing a little bit of auditioning again I don't know what's going to happen with film and TV I mean it's that's so much harder to control you know a friend of mine auditioned for something this morning that's maybe shooting in Newfoundland in the fall and they were talking about you'd have to fly out to Newfoundland quarantine for 14 days before you start production. Like, where's the money going to come from to do all of this? You know, it's like I, I have no idea how our industry is going to handle all of this. When the world of day players is pretty well gone because to bring in one person for one day you can't quarantine them for 14 days and unless you're a leading actor there's not going to be any opportunities until there's a vaccine for quite some time a little scary it is it's a very difficult yeah. time and uh, i guess one of the only benefits is that you have the time to be able yeah. to talk to me <laughs> so thank, thank you, you. Once again, my thanks to Elva May Hoover for her memories and the inside baseball on acting in Canada. And that's Sonic Speaks for another episode. Be here in two weeks as we continue our nightfall interview celebrating 40 years of this iconic show. I'm Jack Ward. Have a great day. for listening to Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. We invite you to continue the amazing audio tomorrow on Mutual with the Monday Matinee. Our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio dramas. You can subscribe to the full Mutual Audio Network feed every day for the world's largest curated collection of audio drama or find the Monday Matinee feed in your favorite podcast players. See you tomorrow at the matinee and thanks so much for listening. The Mutual Audio Drama Network, where we listen and imagine together. 